is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. them together, this totality of, of groupings here. I mean, this is who is running our country right now. These this collection of entities from, you know, these foreign countries. And again, they're not the countries themselves, they're not the people of the countries or the leaders of these countries and all these domestic groups. I mean, it is just very, very indicative of how we've landed up where we are today. And the reason I'm mentioning all of this is is because it's useful to remind ourselves that there's a foreign element as well as the domestic element, but also to bring in Michael McKay, who is an expert in Ukraine and who brilliantly this week started pointing out something that I've been thinking about for a bit now, that this is very similar in terms of strategy and tactics to what was going on uh, in the Ukraine sort of post-2014. So Michael, why don't you first explain to people what your connection is to Ukraine, and then maybe uh, we can talk a little bit more about the similarities that you see. Okay, sure. Thanks for having me, out. Yeah, and you're saying a lot of people started to take notice of uh, this connections. Well, you know, t I've been making these connections for many, many years, and, uh, <laughs> you know, they just finally found a resonance because, of course, the time is right, uh, right. for what people are seeing. I think people are shocked really of course by what they're seeing yeah it's just and unbelievable looking really. for explanations uh sure i've i've been involved in ukraine um really since soon after uh independence which was uh, uh 1991 and i was a uh, lecturer at a university in kiev uh, for a few years and i've been back and forth many many times since uh, including as an international election observer so in that context uh, i was I was at the Orange Revolution at the end of 2004, so I saw the, uh, you know, the falsification by Yanukovych, backed by Putin, and then ultimately the repeat runoff election where Yushchenko was elected, and then kind of more of a distance, I saw the, you know, the democratic revival that Yushchenko tried kind of falling apart, and then that was the era in which Paul Manafort worked um, for Putin to uh, um, guide Yanukovych from oblivion, political oblivion, which he was in, to ultimately power in 2010. And I observed that election too. So let's just throw down a little bit here for everyone, because I'm not sure people know who the different characters are. Yanukovych is basically Ukraine's Donald Trump. He's a puppet installed by Putin. Uh, you know, he mm -hmm. came from a party uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, the Party of Regions, I think was the name. And this is, this is him, we just throw up a little picture so people know who he is. And he ended up stealing a lot of money from the Ukrainian treasury, I think $1.5 billion. And he was a puppet of, uh, of Putin. And his main advisor was none other than Paul Manafort, who, I mean, apparently has an interest in, in Ukrainian politics as well. So, I mean, that connection there is very significant because uh, Manafort was hired by Oleg Deripaska and, uh, and other oligarchs from, from Russia and Ukraine to work for Yanukovych. So there's a clear connection, as we know, between Manafort and the Russians, and also between Manafort and Yanukovych. And we know, of course, Manaf Manafort and, and Trump. So tell us what Manafort and uh, Yanukovych did together and how that's similar to, to what happened with, uh, with Donald Trump. Well, from the, from the period from beginning of 2005 up until 2010 with the election victory, um, they really constructed this image of him as the um, 
strong man type of leader, uh, kind of father of the nation type. Manafort engineered uh, an anti-NATO rally in 2006, and that was organizing a mob which ended up attacking U.S. Marines, throwing Molotov cocktails and so on. Mm. Um, that was in 2006, and this was to all build the profile of his guy, um, uh, um, uh, Yanukovych. Yeah, yeah. around this, actually, earlier than this, this is when Trump did his piece in the New York Times, I think, about his anti-NATO piece. Mm. So, you know, and, was a bit of a bad blue, like, like what's this New York real estate guy got to do with NATO? Uh, right. So uh, <laughs> anyway, paid uh, for that probably, you know, to kind of bring something else that will be kind of familiar to uh, to um, to American uh, viewers. Um, once Yanukovych was in power and Manafort was still advising him, they started the lock her up movement which was against oh. Timoshenko, wow. his uh, Democratic opponent. So I was, I was there. And, um, you know, so and later on, of course, I realized, well, she's Hillary Clinton in the in what in the US what version after 2016. Yeah. You know, when I when I heard Michael Flynn and other people like this, lock her up, lock her up, I thought, well, this is this is 2011 all over again so in Ukraine. It's it's the same language. It's the same intent. I'm going to take the female Democratic opponent that I de defeated in the last election, and I'm going to, you know, put her down. Um, and so this was, you know, among many of the resonances I started to see. That's so interesting, that because you basically battle tested some of these tactics in Ukraine and then brought it over mm -hmm. here to try out with Donald Trump. I mean, Paul Manafort took Yanukovych was a bit of a badass, right? He wasn't, he was considered like a bit of a low life and re-engineered his life. He, yeah, sort of, he, was, he was basically a um, low level Donetsk gangster. Right. Uh, he was pulled up uh, to, to be what he was. And so yeah, Manafort was able to take, the, to take him and re rehabilitate his image publicly and then elected him, got him elected. Of course, with Putin's yeah. help and God knows who else helped him. And then um, they had this giant revolution, um, which took, which was pushed back against him. He was thrown out of power. And I don't remember the date, it must be 2014 or something like that, 20, right? I don't remember, when was, when was the Maidan, yeah. the Euro Maidan? Uh, it was from the end of November, 2013 to uh, February, 2014. Okay, so tell us what was going on there, because that turned out to be a bloody mess, literally a bloody mess. And a lot of the blood seems to be spilt and still gets blamed on Paul Manafort for that. Well, part of the um, you know remaking of the image of Yanukovych was to make him this kind of normal-looking politician, and um, you know, and that was fine as long as it was all talk. But what was really gaining pace was the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement, and this was part of Ukraine's path clearly towards the West and away from Russia. Right. And at, by the end of uh, November. Putin called the brakes on that, and he forced Yanukovych to pull out of it. And a protest started in Kiev, and it was started very small. It was just students, you know, um, kind of recalling the Orange Revolution kind of days. You know, come out and you know let's let's get back this association agreement and you know restore our European path. And Yanukovych cracked down hard, really hard, and he was being pressured by Putin and Manafort to do that. And others. I know his daughter, um, Paul Manafort's daughter, actually says that 
that uh, Manafort has blood on his hands from that very... Yeah, she wrote a message to her sisters and says, you know, what have we become? You know, mm. our father has blood on his hands. Wow. Yeah, uh, Yanukovych uh, pushed his party, the Party of Regions, to pass uh, what are now called the dictatorship laws in January 2014. And that's when the killing started, um, uh, where Yanukovych sent uh, his riot police, internal min uh, ministry troops, and uh, what I call Titushki, and what Ukrainians call Titushki, uh, you know, just violent mobs mm -hmm. to kill and beat people. And it culminated in the Maidan massacre. And the worst of that was on the 20th of February, 2014. Over 100 people were killed, mm -hmm. uh, mostly brutal, brutal Yeah, it was such a tragic event. Yet it forced Yanukovych out, right? That was, that was when he had to flee. Yeah, but I want to point out that this was against a massive popular protest that was overwhelmingly peaceful. Mm -hmm. I mean, right. in the right. coldest months of December, there were demonstrations in the center of Kiev, and on a, like three weekends in a row, they had over a million people. Wow. Wow. And that's phenomenal. Kiev is a city of about five, six million people, but people were coming from buses from all over the country. So very you peaceful know. and also very disciplined. And it was fact was... Disciplined. It was I mean, an encampment where people yeah. lived mm. in this like 10-block area in the center of Kiev, thousands of people. They, they basically built a community cut off from the rest of the world. Um, and they just, they manned the barricades and they defended themselves against these attacks for three months. It, it's, just, it's fascinating to me. And, and the similarities are just uncanny. It's like you said, it seemed like it was a dry run. And, mm -hmm. and when you talk about the, Michael, when you talk about the peaceful protests, I mean, that's what we saw this summer, people protesting against police brutality in a peaceful fashion yes. across, the, across the street from the White House and Trump going in, you know, for an American Democratic version of basically a brutal crackdown, you mm -hmm. know, tear gassing people's kids in a park across from the White House for us was unheard of, you know, and it, and it was a shocking and violent move that, you know, the, the guy who, who Paul Manafort helped come to power perpetrated, you know, mm. very similar. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing when I saw that. Yeah. There's, there's also, you know, the, the, the bed that was sent in to, to suppress the Black Lives Matter um, protests with these unbarked, unknown sort of Department of Justice uh, officials. They reminded me a lot of, you know, the Little Green Ben, which first came to Eastern Ukraine in, in early 2014. Uh, you know, soldiers who showed up and they had unmarked uh, military fatigues, but clearly they had some military background. They were rigged out with all the best gear that at the end of the day, people figured out was actually gear uh, from the Russian army. So they were able to tell after a while that uh, these were Russian forces that were actually invading their country and taking over piece by piece of it. Now, I'll show you some pictures of these um, guys who were also referred to as the polite men because their local communities thought they were very polite. But, you know, clearly they were Russians. And one TASS news agency reporter says, intuition tells us something looks like, or if something looks like a Russian soldier, uh, rides on Russian military equipment and says it's a Russian soldier, then it's probably a Russian soldier. But Russian propaganda tells us it's a local defense force. So they were, again, showing us what propaganda, um, you know, experts they were by convincing locals that they were or trying to convince locals that this was local defense when it was actually an invading army. And so finally, after um, a little while, a Finnish newspaper was able to identify a lot of these different aspects of the gear that these uh, soldiers were wearing. And they were able to link it back to the Russian forces. So they were able to 
to confirm that these were in fact Russian sources, uh, forces. And then ultimately Putin uh, admitted that they were. But these guys were showing up everywhere in eastern Ukraine um, in what must have been quite frightening for you know ordinary Ukrainians because uh, here's an invading force of unknown origin suddenly attacking them. You know, what frustrated me at the time was that, you know, reading all these foreign commentaries and nobody was listening to Ukrainians mm -hmm. because they knew right away they were Russians. They were speaking Russian with a Moscow accent, you mm -hmm. know, and there's a clear difference. Many, many Ukrainians speak Russian, but there is a clear difference in an accent. It's unmistakable. And uh, so, you know, th th they knew on the day what was going on right. and they were telling the world but no one was watching their cell phone videos no one was paying attention to what they were saying about what was going on in their own country and this nonsense went on for years it's still going on there's still this ridiculous denial of what's going on in the uh, Donbass region where there are Russian occupation soldiers mm -hmm. And there's still this strange still language. Still a war. Still a war going on. And there's still a war going on, and there's still this language about pro-Russian separatists and nonsense like that. And it's it fills the mainstream media because these up. Ukrainian voices have been ignored. And it's been made up by the Russians. I mean, again, I just want to draw the comparisons here. The Russians have created a sort of narrative for Ukraine, which wasn't necessarily an accurate narrative, even something that people felt, but they imposed it on parts of, of Ukraine and certainly eastern parts of Ukraine. Tell us a little bit more about that whole operation to, to convince parts of, of the Ukraine population that they are, in fact, you know, belong to a different narrative than they did, than they thought they were. Yeah. Um, well, it's... It's the very practiced uh, tradecraft of uh, disinformation, which we're now getting a lot more expert about. Um, and the thing is, these the lies that they tell, they are they're not even well constructed because, and they don't need to be. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, it's the volume of it that counts, and it's it's just the repetition and so on. You know, to give you an example. Um, you know, someone said to Putin, you know, these are Russian soldiers. And he would say, no, they're not. They're local miners and tractor drivers, mm -hmm. you know, these special operations soldiers. Right. And, uh, and well, where did they get all their equipment? Like, you know, T-72 tanks. Oh, you can get that stuff at the corner store kind of Amazon. stuff. Amazon. So Ukrainians who have <laughs> developed a wonderfully vicious sense of humor. You imagine how they, they uh, you know, took this. You know, yeah. all the, the local miners and tractor drivers <laughs> just found find their T-72 tanks down at the bottom of a mine or at the corner store, and then they go around. And they would publish pictures of these Russian soldiers, and they were fond of – and they still are – uh, soldiers in the Russian army who come from the Far East regions. So, and these are these are Asian men, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> and so and and they'll just go on about all oh, this, you know, local Donbass uh, farmer, uh, you know, um, here he is, <laughs> uh, you know, standing up for his freedom, um, and then they'll turn the anti-Ukrainian. Uh, propaganda back on it. So, yeah, the thing about this disinformation campaign is the volume of it, the uh, relentlessness of it, and uh, frankly, how well funded it is. Mm -hmm. uh, 
Joe Biden was talking about it as the big lie. He was talking in his press conference the other day. This is the big lie. That if you repeat it yeah. over and over and over again, people start just to believe it or at least discuss and, it. And it is it's the true. big lie. It's not the good lie. It's yeah. the big lie. It's a big lie. Can, can I say one thing? Of course. Uh, I mean, obviously, there's so many parallels in what Michael just said to Donald Trump, you know, just repeating these lies ad nauseum. And we can draw the parallels with Manafort and Roger Stone, both who basically got out of prison, you know, before this happened or mm -hmm. pardoned, you know. And look what Trump, you know, there's reporting that came out today that Trump has been trying to push the narrative that it was Antifa who mm -hmm. attacked the White House, which sounds just like the incredulous nature of the Ukrainian guys thinking somebody from Eastern Mongolia, you know, <laughs> was, was, was actually from a, a mine in Kiev. And so Trump was trying to tell people, no, it was Antifa, you know, mm -hmm. that was wearing a Donald Trump hat, you know, and attacking the Capitol. You know, I mean, it's unbelievable that, matter. and he just said the lies keep on coming and you just repeat them, never admit you're wrong. And people seem to get away with it. Because it gives them cover. Mm. You know, they don't need it to be true. They just need it to be there. Right. You know, that's why Fox News was saying it immediately while the riots were still happening. Fox News was like, well, we're getting reports that this could be Antifa. It wasn't. Mm. There is no Antifa. I mean, right. we all know that yeah. it wasn't Black Lives Matter. It wasn't anything close to a de Democratic liberal mm. person anywhere near the, you know, the Capitol that day. But it doesn't matter. You just need to give a narrative to the guys who were a part of it or might support it to tell their friends and neighbors tomorrow you know yeah to keep it alive to keep the lie and alive. it plays into a principle of traditional journalism about balanced reporting and presenting both sides so if you jump in that and just tell a lie and say oh well that's another point of view mm. uh, it's a really interesting point they've sort of played into our fairness doctrine which doesn't even really exist anymore but the idea that you have to give all sides a a, a platform uh, is a is a bedrock of journalism, and yet you don't have to. I think you just have to yeah. give the truth. Uh, but I'll, right. I'll, I'll give you a, just one more example about how overwhelming this can be, because it can alter people's perceptions so that their own experience doesn't count as much mm -hmm. as what they've been told. You know, they don't even believe that. Um, I was talking on Skype in uh, the summer of 2014 with someone who was in Luhansk, and at that point, the Russian army had invaded and was in the center of the city. Um, yeah, there it is on the right-hand side. So it's about uh, 40 kilometers from the Russian border. Um, and while we were talking, Russian artillery had been set up in amongst the apartment buildings to fire to the north where the uh, Ukrainian army positions were at the time. And because they were using a human shield tactic, because knowing the Ukrainians would not fire back at this apartment complex uh, at the Russian artillery, because it was just in among the buildings. Um, so that, that was the cover the Russians were using. Mm. And the neighbor of the person I was talking with said later, isn't it terrible what those Kiev Nazis are doing to us? And what, Referring to the Ukrainian government. Right, right. Because they had to you know, fit into the narrative is what you were saying. They, they didn't even put, tie it together with their own experience of what was re literally right outside their door. Right, right. That's, that's the power of disinformation. And that's really what's happening to parts of America right now. I mean, you look at this map here. Part of it is, you know, the red and orange bits are sort of Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine. And then the red bits are people, are areas that Russia has sort of taken over. Is that correct? More or less, yeah. And so, and the rest of it is traditional Ukraine. Um and so 
what, what Putin was able to do is sort of carve out this eastern part of of the country and give them a different set of rules, a different set of of history, a different set of who they were, and basically well, try to foment a, a civil war. In fact, did foment a civil war. Well, he, he tried to foment a, a civil war, but he actually failed. So, you know, he didn't carve out, he invaded. Hmm. He tried to foment a civil war. He tried to say, oh, you speak Russian, you are part of the Russian world. But even in these heavily Russian-speaking areas of Ukraine, it just, it just fell flat because it's not their experience. You see, Ukraine is a complex place. You can't say that uh, because someone speaks Russian that they are part of this Russian world or, or Russian ethnicity. It's not actually as important as some other things. Um, what I observed from 2004 up to today, up to today, is this remarkable phenomenon of the Russian-speaking Ukrainian nationalist. You know, and if you understand that kind of a person, you know, and they say, "Well, what's my nationalism about?" It actually isn't about my language. It isn't about my ethnicity. Sure, I'll speak Ukrainian a bit because it's the national language. I'm more comfortable in Russian. You know, but I'll do whatever. I'll, we'll get along. <laughs> Right. It's kind of like, uh, you know, Montreal near where I live and people will sometimes say in the shops, bonjour, hi, you know, because you don't know. And, you know, most people will speak French, but it's the polite thing to do just you know, in I, case. I, I'm a South African Canadian American patriot. So, um, you know, <laughs> the weirdest things happen, um, yeah. you know, in life. And sometimes you really mean them. Um, so let me tell, talk about what happened after Yanukovych happened. So Yanukovych sure. flees. And then there's a pushback to try to get it back into power. He goes to Kharkiv, which is on the eastern part. It's a Russian-speaking part. Um, and he hangs out with a couple of people who are friends with uh, Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the connection between Mr. Yanukovych's uh, you know, fleeing to the, to the east and then about how he's returned, uh, will try to return to Kiev. Well, first of all, um, this was all scripted by Putin. He, he hang, hung in in Kiev until until the, the gig was up. The, it was clear that after he started to kill people um, that he wasn't going to last. And so they got him out, um, but they didn't get him out of Ukraine. They thought they would set up a provisional government in Kharkiv. And um, this was going back to uh, the, the, the first Russian, uh, first Bolshevik invasion of Ukraine in, uh, in 1919, where they set up a communist uh, republic in Kharkiv before they ended up conquering uh, most of the rest of the country. But anyway, um, a, so Yanukovych went to uh, Kharkiv and he got together with the mayor uh, of Kharkiv at the time, Fenadi Kernes. Uh, by the way, Fenadi Kernes uh, died of COVID uh, last month. Oh, uh, anyway, and also uh, Mikhailo Dobkin, who was the governor, and they had been key figures in his party of regions, and they were going to be part of this pro-Russian provisional government that's set up there. But it completely fell flat. There was just there was no local support. So it was basically these guys, a lot of Russian advisors, and not much else. It's trying to set you up know, sort of breakaway. And that was about it. <laughs> Trying to sort of a break, set, set up a breakaway republic in the eastern part of, of, of Ukraine, 
that Russia would yeah. have control over using this. So it may be the plan for Donald Trump. I mean, I've suspected this for a while. <laughs> this is what they were trying to set up for Donald Trump, was that he, he, he leaves power, but then becomes the president of, you know, whatever you want to call it, Magistan. Well, well, Magistan well this is what I thought all along, because, you know, ultimately Yanukovych uh, was exfiltrated. He was brought out through Crimea because he failed in Kharkiv. There was a brief attempt to try to do the same thing in Donetsk. Then he went to Crimea. But even Crimea, which the Russians claim is a Russian place, it's not at all. Uh, there was just no traction for this at all. So the Russians got him out. They got under Rostov in uh, the Russian Federation. But ever since... Uh, not so much lately, but certainly in the first few years, Putin has brought out Yanukovych as the legitimate president of the United States. Of the, so, of the you know, because the way he was ousted from power was, you know, not legal and so on. So I always thought again. that would be a possible approach or a future for Trump that he could always be positioned as the legitimate uh, president. Of course, you know, you, you have to keep, keep with the narrative that the November 3rd election was stolen and so on. Um, but, but just put him out there. Um, and would he be of value to the Putin regime as that? Maybe. I mean, that's the way Putin thinks. You know, is this, is this a sabotage and disruption method that could get anywhere? Now, it's you interesting know? because... If he, you know, if he failed in Ukraine, maybe he shouldn't have tried it in the biggest democracy in the world, because it's going to backfire on him in the United States too. It seems, but it's really interesting to me how many similarities there are, or these connections there are between um, the Trump world and Yanukovych's world, which is really Putin's world. So, uh, here's a little graphic for you to appreciate some of the names we've experienced in both countries. So, Lev Parnas, you'll remember, was Rudy Giuliani's guy. Lev Parnas comes from Ukraine and uh, worked for Dmitry Firtash, also another Ukrainian who's embroiled in all sorts of things, uh, illegal probably, with uh, Trump and his associates. Um, there's Rudy Giuliani, who we all know very much as the, as the lawyer of the President of the United States, but he was also a, uh, had some sort of bilateral relations. I don't know what he was doing with, with the people of uh, the Eastern Ukraine, but he tried to set up something um, in a di diplomatic sense with them and also in a business sense with them. Um, there's Alexander Angert, who's a very famous mafia guy, Semyon Migolevich, Mogilevich, I should say. And uh, Mogilevich is sort of the godfather of mafia in Russia, as everybody knows. But he's also the sort of guy that set up Dmitry Firtash in, in Ukraine. So there's a direct connection between the mob in Ukraine and the people who, who tried to put up Yanukovych as, as the president there and Semyon Mogilevich. Paul Manafort, we've discussed already, the Vladimir Putin we know. But this is really the same group of people doing the same thing in a different country. It's basically an attack by a foreign group of, of organized criminals under the auspices of a country and, uh, and then trying to sort of separate and incite civil war in another country. Yeah, and when you look at Rudy Giuliani connecting in with these people, you know, yes, he's dealing directly with these corrupt Ukrainian oligarchs, but he's really working a back channel to Putin because that's really what it's all about. Um, for example, his uh, his visit um, with uh, um, Furtash's men and Derkach, where he was basically fed the whole dirt on Biden dossier right. that was that was uh, cooked up uh, in the Kremlin and and fed uh, through all these channels. Um, you know, when I saw that, I saw, well, there was the earlier one, the, the so-called Crimea peace plan. And that was the one that was, uh, 
oh, who were those guys? Felix Sater and and Michael uh, Cohen. Michael Flynn and this kind of, oh, and even Michael Cohen, who was still in at the time. And they were trying to get this to Trump because this reflects what Putin really wants. Mm -hmm. He wants to lift the sanctions. He wants to legitimize his invasion and occupation of Crimea. Um, It hasn't. It's not going to work out for him, clearly, because... It's not going to work out for him. No, this and is a failed mission. He backed Trump thinking there was a chance. Mm. Yeah. It's a and wild gamble, really. It's a wild gamble against the biggest country in the world. I mean, to sort of be... I can understand him trying to do it in a neighboring, neighboring country with a similar language, and, and you can sort of see how he might get away with it there. But then to take the same failed thing and try to implement it in the United States is craziness. Well, but you see, that that reflects Putin's thinking. I mean, he's a sabotage and disruption agent from the KGB. He, you know, you say, this is crazy, this is wild, you're going to fail, but he'll try it and he might succeed to an extent. He'll push against weakness. I think Putin was as surprised as anyway, as anybody, that his uh, support of Trump paid off the way it did. You know, he just thought, okay, come on, Ukraine is a weaker country without the historical democratic traditions, at least in the modern era, and he can get away with Yanukovych. But come on, is it going to work in in the United States? Well, surprise, (laughs) it did, because uh, you just push the right levers. As you were saying earlier, um, it it doesn't, it's important for Putin to invent these problems in the United States, for example, they exist already. And it's too much work to create them anyway, (laughs) right? So so you create the, uh, you just, you pour gasoline on the fire that's already there, which is, that's his mindset. You know, he says, okay, here's here's weak weakness. I'm going to work away at that. It's just amazing. You know, what what Putin was able to accomplish in terms of consolation prizes. You know, we pulled out of Syria, you know, all those mm. bases, you know, Good that point. we abandoned and the Russian army rolled into, you know, the the compromise, the the. The, the the psychological warfare that fueled QAnon to the point that people were attacking the United States Capitol, the seat of democracy. So even though Putin didn't get all of his objective objectives, he did get an American president to interfere with Ukraine and get peached, impeached for it once mm-hmm. already a year ago, you know? Yeah. So it's just terrifying how much damage he did to do. Whatever happens, we're, we're a divided people for some years to come now. You know, we we have 70 million people in this country that, you know, are not Mm going to be easily convinced that Trump isn't the rightful president. And those people have children that are growing up in households where they're hearing all this disinformation and where they're watching Fox News and where they're being influenced by Putin's warfare on America, on Facebook and all Mm -hmm. the social media. And as much as we shut down Parler and all this kind of stuff, and obviously it's great we're doing that, I fear for our future and I think, you know, Putin got paid dividends on his investment in chaos, so to speak. And, and you laid that out brilliantly, Michael. What did they do in Ukraine? How did they, how did they sort of get back to a sense of normality there? Well, um, in, in some ways, they're prevented from doing that from that because of the ongoing war. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why uh, Putin keeps that going, um, pushing as hard as he can. It actually prevents... Ukraine from moving on. Um, they've they've made remarkable progress. Um, I would point to successes like um, um, 
reaching, uh, you know, a deep and comprehensive free trade agreement with the European Union. They now have visa-free travel with the Schengen zone and so on. Uh, Ukrainian passport is one of the fastest rising, you know, passports in the world. You know, it's ahead of Russia, which is significant in terms of accessibility. Um, building a you know, an IT sector for business that's kind of exciting and leading edge and this kind of thing. These are all normal kinds of things that a country should do. Um, but there's this anchor of um, the invasion and occupation of Crimea and parts of Donbass that, you know, just kind of keeps it from, uh, you know, moving. I mean, they, they have a clear vision, uh, EU membership, NATO membership, um, you know, establishing a more solid, normal democracy, uh, truly achieving the rule of law, uh, you know, reforming the courts and this kind of thing. And there's a remarkable social cohesion amongst them. As I said, it transcends language and ethnicity in a remarkable way. Um, that that place must be swimming with operatives. I mean, I think about the United States right now, he's swimming with Russian operatives. Some of them we brought up the other day, but there's a a uh, sense of there must be so many in, in Ukraine um, that Putin sends, whether it's people pretending to be oligarchs like Pavel Fuchs or, or other people like that. It just seems to me really hard. It would be very hard to combat that. How do they handle their operatives? How do they handle their, you know, their Manaforts and whomever shows up to, to do Putin's bidding? Well, you know, it's, it's almost like you remember the, uh, your experience from the Soviet times for the older pe people who remember it. You know, your trusted circle, your family, the people around the kitchen table, that's the real community. And then there's the public face. And, you know, um, yeah, the, the guy next to you on the bus could be the, the guy that tortures you in the, uh, in, in the dungeon uh, at some future point. So, you know. You keep your mouth shut and, you know, you know, you have a public face and a private face. And that, that comes from the, uh, the period of the Russian occupation from 1919 to uh, 1991 and also, you know, we'll today. We'll get to that one on another day. Yeah. <laughs> I really do love all this history lesson you've taught us. But there's, there's a couple of pictures you've sent me about, and I'm not sure these are all from you, but they're pictures which reminded me of what was going on at the Capitol, and obviously not as extreme. I'm not sure if you recognize these buildings. Um, yeah, um, that, um, it, behind it is the uh, burnt out uh, trade union building. It was uh, torched by, uh, by the Yanukovych forces on one of their attacks. Uh, and the reason was the Maidan protesters had set up a hospital there. Now we've, uh, now we've jumped to uh, Luhansk. Okay, sorry. Um, and this is when a pro-Russian mob uh, took the uh, um, uh, security services of Ukraine uh, building. So, um, but again, so mobs, the, the, mobs Dan, and this is after as the Russians are starting to invade. This, this is very much like uh, the experience in the capital last week. Mm -hmm. That was people who thought they were doing one thing. They were thought they were saving their city uh, from uh, these Kiev Nazis. Um, but in fact, they were the face of a Russian invasion. Hmm. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. What a fascinating uh, 30, 40 minutes we've spent with you. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate your time tonight. I wanted to share with everyone one last quote from the, um, the defense secretary of Russia, which is an interesting quote. He says, it's hard to search for a black cat 
in a dark room, especially if it's not there. Just such a Russian way of thinking of things. But, but really, this is what they're doing. These sort of these attacks on American democracy or Ukrainian democracy, which you cannot see, but you know are there. And it's actually a very disturbing strategy, which I think is why we have to you know, make sure that Trump is impeached and removed and that this kind of message gets sent back to Putin. They can't keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's absolutely important that there can't be any waiting for, you know, wait for inauguration or day. Wait for what? Right. <laughs> there has to be, as, as you said, Noel, it has to be a statement for future generations. This is a moment for history. Yeah. Well, well said. You've got 10 more days of President Trump. What do you think you know the man? You know, if you were predicting what's going to happen, what would you try and say will happen? I think he'll bail. I think the walls will cave in. You know, he'll get impeached tomorrow. I think the Mitch McConnell thing is going to have, pardon me, a lot of fallout for him psychologically. I think he's already retreated, you know, in the White House and everybody's sort of backing away from him. I think he'll say, fire up, you know, Air Force One and take me down to Mar-a-Lago. I'm out of here. You know, he can't tweet. (laughs) Yeah. What's in it for him? You must be driving him crazy that not being able to tweet. It has to be torture. Mm. You know, the guy I know would rather have his Twitter account back than the next, you know, than the president's. Narrative is funded by viewers like you. Support our independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative.